Preparation and love for the Lord and His Word. Would you stand with me? And let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Now, Father, we come to ask for Your blessing upon the reading and preaching of Your Word. Lord, I pray that Your blessing would be upon my own lips as an unprofitable servant that might speak of these glorious truths, Lord, that it would benefit Your people, that we would all possess hearts ready to receive the truth, a desire and a will to bear the obedience that it calls for and to make our paths line up with it. Oh Lord, come and bless us now with the word of truth. Come and bless us with your spirit. Open our minds. Open our hearts. Lord, change our lives for your own glory and our good. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. And brothers and sisters, Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to begin reading at verse 25. And then I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will not bring a famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree, the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Now, I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord that on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquity, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt, the desolate land to be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say... This desolate land has become like a garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. And then the nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and have planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Begin reading at verse 2. And the large crowds gathered around him, and he went into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seas fell by the side of the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. 
And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, we are studying the kingdom parables for the sake of of understanding um, the gospel and understanding what it, the kingdom of God really means. And I'm not going to begin to rehearse what we've already stated. You can certainly listen to that sermon. But I want to spend some time continuing to make distinctions and clarifications about the soils that are represented in this parable. And why there is one that stands out among all of the soils. I think it's important for us to open that up and to wrestle with it so that we might gain a true discernment, a true understanding that we might be able to exercise some wisdom after we listen to the message itself. Now what is it that distinguishes these soils from one another? Well, the, the wonderful thing about the parable itself is we have a divine interpretation of the parable. Jesus, when He's asked by His disciples what it means, well, He explained it to them. And we find that down there in verse 18. Jesus tells us what the soils represent. Look there with me at verse 18. He says, now hear the parable of the sower. What he's doing is he's, he's, going, he's gaining the attention of his disciples. And he says this. Now listen, you need to understand this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown by the roadside. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet has no firm root in himself, but is, all, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And then the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit, and brings forth some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. Jesus gives us a divine explanation of the parable itself. But let's take it a little bit further in order to enhance our own understanding. We see from the interpretation that the soil represents different types of hearts. Now that's what Jesus says here. In verse 19, he says, what does the evil one come and do? The, the, when the first type of hearer, um, the, the, the sower where the, the word of God comes by the, the roadside, if you will. And what does he say? He says, he comes and snatches away that which is sown in his heart. We see here that the soil is representative of the heart of man. One is represented as Hard, 
hard. That's the, the sower, that's the seed that is falling by the, the roadside, if you will, the wayside. It's the hard, packed down dirt. It's the hard heart. I spoke of that hard heart being indifferent to the preaching of the gospel. Indifferent to the kingdom of God. He doesn't care. He or she is not concerned about eternal life. All they are concerned about is now. When you think about a hard heart, you might think about Pharaoh. Now, we don't have time in our short period this morning to go back and look into Exodus, but I would implore you to do that. Go back and read all of those passages that deal with Pharaoh's hard heart and how Pharaoh, when he came in contact with the truth, when he came in contact with God's prophet, when he came in contact with God Himself through the prophet, he hardened his heart. He was indifferent. I think one of the most famous sayings out of the book of Exodus uttered from Pharaoh's own mouth was, what do I, Pharaoh, have to do with this God? And we find that that utterance is very um, common in our own day, isn't it? What do I have to do with God? That's the hard heart. The second heart represents that shallow heart. That's no rootedness. We spoke about rootedness and I was dealing with the, uh, the, the purpose and the, the use of creeds and confessions. And remember in dealing with the, the Apostles' Creed, I talked about rootedness and what it means to be rootless. Tossed to and fro. All over the place. Not having a a fixed place. Not having a, a firmness of conviction. A firmness of belief. And a people that is not firm in what they know and what they understand and what they believe in will be rootless. That's why the wicked are are often described as rootless, unstable Like the wave of the ocean tossing up froth, the book of Jude talks about how the wicked are just here and there. They're all over the place. That's not to be a description of God's people. God's people are to be described as rootful, I mean as, as fruitful, rooted, firmly planted, and stable. Now those are the words that we could find in Scripture that would describe God's people. I mean, notice, if you will, the aspect of uh, of Psalm 92. And the reason I chose this psalm is right there in verse 12. It says, you know, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. That's the idea. That's the concept. So when Jesus is giving this parable, there's not a disconnection with all that's been taught in the Old Testament. There is a contrast and a distinction made between those that believe and those who do not. So we see the contrast of the 
the hard heart, and then we see the shallow heart. But there's another heart there, and, and that's the heart where it's the thorns and the thistles, it's the deceitfulness of this world choke out the seed. And this seed almost comes to the place where it bears fruit, but in the end it falls away. It's choked out. It's choked out. Now what do these three soils have in common and why is there such a stark contrast between the soil that we're fixing to look at, the good soil? What is it that these three soils all have in common? Practically speaking, all three of them love sin. All three of these soils are not willing to let sin go. The hard heart's not willing to let it go for a second. The shallow soil is willing to reform in a very small degree as long as it's easy, as long as it's convenient. Because that's the idea that's given there. The moment faith, religion, belief in God, confession of faith, um, walking in the, the, the paths of, of righteousness by, by, by killing sin in our own hearts, it's hard work. See, when that becomes inconvenient, what happens to the shallow soil? The love of sin and convenience and ease and popularity win the day. It wins the day. And then you have the other soil. It seems to spring up. It seems to have a root. It appears to have a root. But what happens? And there can be long periods of time. It could be years and years and years. But at some point, the worry of this world takes over. They can't maintain the cause of Christ because in the end, the dog returns to its vomit. In the end, beloved, love of sin wins the day. And some men and women, some families spend years in church only to fall away in the later part of their lives. They make reform of habits. They reform their lives. Not for eternal reasons, but for selfish reasons. Just to make marriage better, we'll make some changes to, so we can remain married. Or we'll reform some of our child-rearing practices so that we can make it easier around the house. Or, or we can even eliminate some of our friends so that we are not tempted as we once were. But none of those things bear fruit for eternity. Because they are done solely for selfish and sinful reasons. I'll give you a little sort of a, uh, an, an example when I've done quite a bit of marriage counseling. And, 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 and a lot of times when you, have, when you do marriage counseling as a pastor, it's unfortunate that a lot of it's in crisis mode. <laughs> you know, because no one really wants to have a checkup on marriage. Um, it usually comes with some crisis of marriage. That is, things are falling apart and they've been falling apart for some time and so now really we don't have any other choice to try to hold on to this, but let's go see the pastor. And I've had um, 
men and women sit in front of me and, and, and the spouse has left the home for a time. And, and they plead and, and cry and they're broken and they say, you know, I'll do anything to get them back. And I often say this to them in response to that comment. I'll say, anything? Yes, anything. Would you sin? Would you sin more? What are you willing to do to actually get your spouse back? And the reason I ask that sobering question is to cause them to wake up and begin to think, if they are Christians, what? To think like a Christian. That is, a Christian should always ask this question first. What does God think? What does God require? What's God's will in this circumstance? And how often do we become selfish in our remedy of our own problems? Well, that's the third soil. That's the third soil. Well, what is it that distinguishes this fruitful soil from the other three? Well, if you read many good commentaries, one distinction that they're going to make between that last soil, the good soil, the fruitful soil, that soil that bears much fruit, against the other three is God's saving mercy. See, that's the difference. That is, Jesus isn't saying there are men that are good and they are so good that they hear the gospel and they receive the gospel and thus are saved. They're saved because of their goodness. That's not the way we should understand it. Because the Bible tells us from the Apostle Paul's writings, Romans chapter 3, that there are none good, no, not one. There are none good. That's why I read Ezekiel from Ezekiel 36. What is it that makes the hard heart, the shallow heart? What is it that makes that that worrisome heart, that worldly heart good? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that's sent by the Father and Christ to come into one's life and open their eyes. What did Jesus say when He began to teach the parables? This is several sermons ago. He said, I I, I speak so that those who hear would not hear. That those who see would not see. He says, I come. Why? Because they are the ones, the ones who don't see, the ones who cannot hear are the ones who have their eyes patched and plugged over by sin. Sin has formed a scale over their eyes. They can't understand. They can't perceive. They don't know. They can't understand. Why? Because sin has so affected their thinking, their minds, and their hearts. The sin has so numbed and dulled their sensitivity to their issues and to their, their, their own lives that they don't see and understand. They may hear the Word and say, well, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's bad. But even, even when someone who hears the Gospel is convicted that this is, you know, it's not a bad thing. This is a good thing maybe to believe in Jesus. When there is a lack 
of the fear of God in that conviction. It's not a true conviction. It's not just to understand, I have a need, but yet, what is that great need? I have a need to be sheltered from the wrath and anger and just wrath and anger of a holy and righteous God for my sin. I need to be sheltered. I just don't need to reform my life. I just don't need to believe in certain things. That's one of the things that brings out these distinctions is people can believe in Jesus. They can believe that Jesus came into the world. They can believe He was born of a virgin. They can believe He died on the cross. They can believe He was resurrected. They can believe He's in heaven. They can believe He's coming back again. But beloved, if those beliefs and convictions do not stir up a fear of God in the heart of the sinner, it's for nothing. For nothing. Those convictions must be translated into a perception of one's need to be sheltered and saved by God. Lord, there's a wrath. There's wrath coming. Just wrath. And I need shelter. You know what people need to be saved from? You say, well, we need to be saved from sin. Well, we're saved out of sin, but you know what you need to be saved from? the wrathful anger of God. Because on that day of judgment, the separation is going to take place. God is going to receive some into His heavenly abode and He's going to cast the rest into hell itself. I want you to think, beloved. I don't want you to walk out of here and think of yourself as, well, I am a believer and my fruitfulness... And all my belief is a result of my goodness. It is not. It is not. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. It's a very, it's an important passage of Scripture in understanding what I'm talking about here. Turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 15. And then we're going to make some applications this morning. John chapter 15. Now think about everything that I've said. I want you to think about what makes the soil good. And what I've told you and what we've read out of Ezekiel 36 is is the work of the Spirit of God. It's the divine saving work of God to come into the heart of the sinner, transform his hard heart into a New heart. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 15. Now I am the vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, key, that's a key statement, in me, that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's the statement I want you to see. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I will stop there and I think that's the point. If you look at the text, what is Jesus saying about this, this fruitfulness of the Christian? Well, first of all, it's not in and of himself. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. You are not fruitful outside of me, apart from me. The only fruitfulness that you can bear that we would legitimately say is fruitful is only those who abide in me. Now, Jesus goes on to tell us what it means to abide in Him. He says, if you abide in me, you also abide in my word. Jesus makes the comparison. He says, listen, you want to know how you know you are abiding in me? You want to, how, you want to know how you know these things? Abide in my word. Read my word. Study my word, understand my word, memorize my word, confess my word. Why? Because if you understand this word, if you know these things, guess what you're going to also know? That you also abide in me. And if, Jesus says, if you are abiding in me, if you are in me, you will bear much fruit. Why? Because my Father's going to prune you. My Father is going to work in you. He's going to, by the Spirit of God, He's going to work in you so that you not only bear fruit, but that you increase in bearing fruit. It's a beautiful picture, really. It's a beautiful picture. We are called upon, beloved, to exercise discretion here. Discretion comes from the Latin word, that is the English word discretion comes from the Latin word to separate, to make judgments. What are we do, what are we to do when we hear this parable of the sower? We are to make judgments, what? Between each of those hearts and ask, what are we to ask ourselves? Which one is me? Which one is me? Am I indifferent? Do I bear the characteristics of a hard heart? Do I listen to message after message after message after message and I can walk out of the context, out of the presence of the message itself and never think anything else about it? That's a hard heart. A hard heart does that. Am I a shallow person? I only really think about religion on Sundays when it's convenient. I only think about my Bible when the pastor opens it on the pulpit. Is that me? I'm all about the convenience of religion. Are you a worrier? Do you have an issue ultimately trusting God? See, that's the problem with the worrier. The problem with the worrier is he really doesn't trust God. He's really not trusting in God to provide for him. Why? Because the text says, what, the, the riches of the world. Do I have enough money? Do I have enough prestige? I want a certain lifestyle. If I believe in Christ, I'm, I, I, I can't do that. I am going to pull away from Christ. And, you know, I will just sort of be a private Christian. There are none. There are none. 
Or, beloved, are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit? Let's look at the fruit. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Now I'm going to begin to spend some time examining what this fruit... We need to inspect this fruit. How do we know it's good fruit versus bad fruit? We need to look at that. Turn to Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5, look at verse, look down at uh, verse 17. I'm going to read that little context there, and I think you'll see it clearly. For the flesh, now the flesh is the opposite of the spirit. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. That is, look, what is the fruit of the flesh? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That is, this is not an exhaustive list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, now look at the fruit, the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. I want to stop there. Because I want to talk about this fruit for the remainder of our time this morning. We are given a description of what the life of a person looks like who has the Spirit indwelling them. And they possess this new life, this new heart. And he says that the fruit of the Spirit, that is, how do I know I'm a Christian? Now, some people would answer that question and say, well, I've been baptized. I've joined the church. I've made a profession of faith. Those are not bad things. But those are not in this list. See, Jesus is teaching us in the parable of the sower the nature and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not established through church membership. The kingdom of God is not established politically. The kingdom of God is not established by any organization of men. It's a spiritual kingdom. It is sown through the preaching of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. It is sown by the Spirit of God in the heart of all of His elect. And it begins to impact the culture and environment around them by them bearing the fruit and the evidence of a regenerated life and a new heart. In fact, um, I think now may be a good time. Take, if you want to follow along with me, I just want to point something out to you. You can look on, on in, your, in your hymnal. You can turn to page 680 and you're going to see the Westminster Confession of Faith there, chapter 16. 680. 
I want to point out a couple of things because when we think about this fruitfulness, I don't want you to gravitate to um, bacon cookies or fixing a meal or simple social activity as fruitfulness. I'm not saying those things are not part of it, but they are not it. You follow me, I hope. That those things are, they flow from and out of, but they're not part of, I believe, the fruitfulness of what Jesus is speaking of there. If you will look in there, and I want you to look at paragraph, or look at paragraph one of good works. Now notice, this is a paragraph that calls us to be discerning. We need to be able to discern those good works, that is, those which bear fruit, and those which do not. Listen to what the paragraph says. Good works are, are only such as God has commanded in His holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. Now we're told there that good works are only those things that are prescribed in God's Word. Why? Because what did Christ tell us? How are you made fruitful? By abiding in Me. How do you know you are abiding in Christ? If you are abiding in the Word of Christ, the Word of God, and if you are abiding in Christ, if you are abiding in the Word of God, guess what you're going to be? Fruitful. Fruitful. Look at Matthew. Or let me just give you a few verses here. Again, it's the opposite of what we're talking about in being fruitful. Matthew 15, verse 13. Our Lord Jesus tells the disciples, He says, Every plant... That's not planted by my Father, my Heavenly Father will be uprooted. Every plant not planted by my Father is going to be uprooted. Now, it's important that, that we understand the context of Matthew 15. It's dealing with the legalism of the Pharisees. We are not to be legalistic. We're not to be legalists. What is a legalist? A legalist is someone who derives a standard of righteousness according to their own obedience to something. That is, they are considered righteous because they have ascribed themselves to a certain standard and thus their righteousness is based upon themselves. That's, a, that's legalism. The Pharisees thought they were righteous and good before God, and God had rejected them because they had a righteousness that was not derived from Jesus Christ, but from themselves. Self-righteousness. The fruitful person is someone who is the recipient of the righteousness of Christ. They are justified and made righteous in God's sight. They receive the Spirit of God. They are made new creations in Christ. And immediately they begin to bear fruit. What's some of the fruit? What is some of this fruit? What are some of the, the good works of the commands? Well, what's the gospel? What's the gospel of the kingdom? Repent and believe. So what's the very first action? What's the very first fruit that's born out of a new heart and a new life? Eyes that see, ears that hear. What is it? It's repentance of sin. 
And it's belief in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you know how many people sitting in church right now that have never repented of their sins? Have never, ever felt a need to confess their sins and to acknowledge themselves as sinners and to see themselves, listen to me, listen to me, as offensive in God's sight outside of Christ. We are in love with self, beloved. There is a love of man that prevails in the evangelical church that is putrid in the eyes of God because that man can't be saved. A man that doesn't see his need, he doesn't see his wretchedness, he doesn't see his own righteousness as filthy rags, can never receive the mercy of God. Why? Because he doesn't see his deserving of wrath and, and damnation. You say, well, well pastor, I thought, you were, I thought you believed in the sovereignty of God. I thought you believed in the power of God. Brothers and sisters, I do, but let me tell you a mistake that you may be making if you're not in agreement with me. God deals with man according to the way He created man. He preaches a message that is to resonate in the mind and the heart of man that is rational, that is knowable, that is knowledge and understanding, that is man is to be thinking about these things and say, you know what, I don't see I have a need here. He can't be saved. Because when God opens His eyes and God gives him a new heart, What's the fruit? I see my wretchedness. I see my need. And if I don't flee to this refuge who is Christ, I will perish in my sins because God will justly condemn me for them. And I must embrace Christ in His work. I must flee to Christ who is the ark of my salvation. I must flee to Christ who is the Savior of any who will be saved. And I must robe, I must be robed in His righteousness. And I can only be robed in the righteousness of Christ by the very grace of God in His mercy. I don't deserve it. You can't be saved, beloved, if you think you deserve salvation. Why? Because that's sinful. You're not abandoning your sin. You can't be saved, beloved, if you believe that there is something in you and about you that God just will accept and overlook your sin because of it. Obedience is fruit. Are you an obedient servant of Christ? Look at paragraph 2 in your says these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Stop there. They are the evidences, this fruit. You know, when you're thinking about the field and you're thinking about the soil, how do we know the soil is good? I mean, when we drive by, you know, we live kind of out in, this is uh, agricultural land. You can drive by, you can see the cornfields and the, the luscious green fields and the alfalfa fields and whatnot. And how, you know what? We say, man, that's some good soil because that stuff's so luscious and green. Fruit. The fruit is the evidence 
that there's something good going on in the soil. There's something good there that's been tilled, it's been tended to, it's been watered, it's been cultivated, it's been fertilized. All that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, beloved, is evident, not secret. It is evident in our repentance of sin. It is evidence in our receiving and trusting in Christ and not ourselves. Don't trust in the church. Don't trust in my preaching. Don't trust in, in being a, a, a reformed church. Don't, oh, I'm a reformed Christian. So what? There's going to be reformed Christians in hell. There's going to be preachers in hell. There's going to be people who were church members all their lives in hell. Because they never were of the good soil. They never bore the fruit of obedience, repentance, faith. James tells us in that small but just thought-provoking epistle, he says in James chapter 2, verse 2, he says, a living faith and good works go together, doesn't he? He said, I will show someone by my faith. I will show my faith by my works. That's what he's That works there is, again, this metonym. It's this description of fruit, of obedience. That is, the Christian could be described as fruitful. And it would just be one word that would describe the whole of the Christian life. Fruitful, obedient, faithful. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, and by them, that is what? These evidences, these fruits, the believers manifest their thankfulness. You know what worship is? Worship is nothing more than the gathering of God's people at some appointed time where we get together and express what? Praise and thanksgiving to God for His saving mercies. And out of those saving mercies, what? All of His daily care for us. Uh, and what else? And the hope and the encouragement that He has given us throughout the week. Because I can tell you this, beloved. If you've spent time on your knees, if you've spent time in the Word of God, if you've spent time talking to your brothers and sisters about the things of God, you've been built up. You cannot do it as a Christian and not be encouraged. Fruitfulness is an expression of thankfulness. You know what worship is? The public expression of thanksgiving. They manifest their thankfulness. What else do they manifest? They strengthen their assurance. Assurance is huge. Because as the culture begins to disintegrate and turn on itself, implode. All right? Why is the culture imploding around us? Because they continue to deny and reject God. And that's the only thing cultures can do that re- deny and reject God is fall under His temporal judgments in this world and just implode on itself. And what do we need when that goes on? We need assurance. That we know God. We know the one in control. We need assurance that we're walking with Him. We need assurance that our lives is the fruit. It's the, it's the, um, it's the, the manifestation of God's love and mercy towards us and our love and mercy toward God and others. 
You go back to the fruits of the Spirit and think about the love of God. You think about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control and ask yourself, you know, what's the fruit of my love for God? What's the fruit of my love for the Word of God? What's the fruit of my love for worship? What's the fruit of my love for truth and righteousness? What's the fruit of my love for the Spirit and the work He's doing? What's the fruit of my love for, for my brothers and sisters who believe like I do and even others who I don't necessarily agree with in every uh, jot and tittle? But you know what? Believe in Christ. Assurance, beloved. There's a confirmation. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Whereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. I cannot stress this idea of fruitfulness. You can't separate this fruitfulness apart from obedience to God's Word. Why? Because obedience is the natural flow out of saving faith with the Word of God. It naturally flows out of faith. Notice what he else he says: edify their brethren, to edify one another. You know what's good for the body when you're fruitful. What happens when you're not? And I'm I'm right out of time. But what happens when we don't exhibit the life? a new life in Christ. What happens? Well, well, first of all, we harm ourselves. We don't build, we're not obedient. We're not, we don't have that assurance. I, I'm not one for deathbed conversions. I, I mean, if you think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to live the life I want to live and I'm just going to wait Till I'm on my deathbed and I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus. Wow, you are so presumptuous and you are playing with fire. You, 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 are, you scare me if that's you. Because you may not ever have that opportunity. You're not guaranteed that opportunity. You're not guaranteed how you're going to die. But let's just say you have that opportunity. It, wouldn't it be a terrible thing for you to live a life that you don't have that assurance when you die in this world? You don't know. Because you've been so inconsistent. You've been so sporadic. You've been so wishy-washy, uncommitted, that you don't have that assurance. The assurance that Jesus is speaking of is that which flows from obedience. And the greater degree of that obedience, the stronger that assurance will be. It edifies the church. You know what? I mean, and I don't mean to be morbid here, but I'm going to say, brothers and sisters, I've read testimonies of great men and women in the past, and you know what I say to myself? I want to die like that. Let me die like that. I want to die singing hymns, if, I, if possible. I want to die with my children praising God around me. I want to die hearing my family praise God. I want to die in the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. If, if that happens. Because I want my life to edify those around me. And I pray God would allow it and bless that. And I hope you desire that as well.
The other thing it says, it says that it's, they adorn the profession of the gospel. It's fitting, beloved, that when we bear fruit, it's fitting, it's fitting that it, is, it fits. That is, when we preach the gospel and we preach this new life in Christ and we preach that all who believe in Christ have eternal life and they have life now, when we preach that there's a great blessing upon those who receive Jesus Christ, guess what? A fruitful life is fitting and the great companion to that testimony. How many people, you know, try to tell others about Jesus and not bear one twig of fruit? And just wonder why people don't listen to them. Being fruitful is the companion to evangelism. It also proves to hush the critics of the church. Notice what the profession goes, uh, confession goes on to say. It says, stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God whose workmanship we are created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. I'm going to stop there and close the sermon. Bring glory to God. See, that's that ultimate fruit, isn't it? How can I bring glory to God? What's the chief end of man? What's your highest purpose, brother? To glorify God and enjoy Him. That's the highest purpose. Now, you have many purposes. Many. You have a ton of subordinate purposes and goals in life. But what's the highest? What's the chief? What should be first? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why do you do what you do? What's your motivation? And where is the glory of God in it? Now, brothers and sisters, we've opened up a little bit of this fruit. And I I, I wanted to keep it necessarily separate from the social activities. Because I think if you get this right... Repentance, faith, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those social activities will be right. Let's get this right. Jesus is saying that those who receive the preaching of the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom comes in those hearts that have been changed and bear fruit. That's the only way you can glorify God. That's the only way. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. I'm going to give you this. Without fruit, let me put it another way. Fruit is the key to eternal life. No man's going to heaven that does not bear this fruit. No man's going to heaven that does not bear this fruit. Because this fruit is the evidence of a work, a spiritual work and saving work of God within the heart of the man and woman. Look for fruit. Jesus said, by your fruit you shall know them. Let's pray.